In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, please be seated. Now, out of all of the the few sermons that we've done on eschatology thus far, this has been um, the one that I've been looking forward to the most. Um, Romans 11 is, in my opinion, the, the clearest picture in the New Testament for God's plan for the future of mankind. Um, so we're going to start a 10-week series on Romans 11. Okay, we we're not going to do that. We're going to finish Romans 11 this morning. Um, so here's the question that I want to start with this morning. Is there anything that has to happen before Jesus returns? Or can he simply just return at any moment? Could he return in the next hour? Now, for most of my Christian life, I would have I would have said that, yeah, Jesus can return at any moment. He can return in the next minute. He could he could return before we have Mother's Day lunch. But may I suggest to you that that's actually entirely wrong. It's entirely wrong. And, and, and no school of eschatology actually teaches that Jesus can return at any moment. Uh, please don't read it now, but I put an insert into the bulletin that, that demonstrates that every eschatology, whether it's pre-mill or, or on-mill or post-mill, uh, they all teach that something must take place before Christ's second coming. All of them do. Now, there is actually one event uh, that all three eschatologies uh, teach that must happen before Christ returns, and that is the theology of Romans 11. Namely, that one day the, the fullness of Israel will come to Christ, verse 12. That, that she as a whole will be accepted by God, verse 15. That Israel will be grafted back into the olive tree, verse 24. That all Israel will be saved, verse 26. Now, I'm certainly not saying that every theologian from every school of eschatology um, believes this. Uh, nor am I saying that they all agree on the timing of this event or the nature of Israel's place in redemptive history. But what I am saying is that there are theologians from every eschatological school that teach a great revival is yet to be accomplished for Israel as a national and ethnic people. So let me give you a quick survey. Historical Premillennialist Charles Spurgeon, 1834 to 1892, said this, quote, I think we do not attach sufficient importance to the restoration of the Jews. We do not think enough of it. But certainly, if there is anything promised in the Bible, it is this. I imagine that you cannot read the Bible without seeing clearly that there is to be an actual restoration of the children of Israel, end quote. All millennialist Martin Lloyd-Jones, 1899 to 1981, says this, quote, But I am equally impressed by Romans 11, which speaks of a great spiritual return among the Jews before the end time. While this seems to be developing, even something even more spectacular may be indicated, end quote. And then post-millennialist Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758, said, quote, Nothing is more certainly foretold than this national conversion of the Jews is in the 11th chapter 
of Romans. And there are also many passages of the Old Testament that cannot be interpreted in any other sense, end quote. So, put your theological guns down. Um, Because regardless of what eschatology you hold to, there are theologians that belong to your school who are going to agree with much, at least, of what I'm going to say this morning. Um, Loved ones. Romans 11 is teaching that a great revival is coming in the future to Israel, the likes of which the world has never seen. And so grand is this future work of God that Paul can't help but explode into praise at the end of this chapter when he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. So here is our big idea as we begin. Before the end, God will pour out his covenant mercies on Israel. They will embrace the Savior. They will be grafted into the church. And this will mean life from the dead for the rest of the world. So let's begin with our doctrine. Now hopefully you see that there is a an organic and natural connection between 1 Corinthians 15, 24, where we're going through the book of Corinthians and Romans 11. Both chapters speak about what must take place before the end. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 does it in summary form, and Romans 11 expands it. So let's turn to Romans so that we can um, examine um, this expansion that Paul has laid down. Now, the context for Romans 11 actually begins in Romans 8. At the end of Romans 8, Paul makes that wonderful declaration that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. And so then immediately Paul says, as as a way of objection, well, then what about the Jews? Um, It appears that the whole nation of of the Jews have been separated from the love of God. And if the Jews were separated from the love of God, then what hope do we as Gentiles have that God wouldn't separate us from him? Well, enter Romans 9. Paul admits immediately that although the Jews had all of these privileges, God's word has not failed. Because it's not a naked ethnicity that... It secures one in the love of God. Paul says in verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Then he says it's, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. And to Romans 10, Paul says that though the Jews truly had a zeal for God, it wasn't according to knowledge. In verses 3 and 4, he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Jews sought a righteousness according to the law, verse 5, rather than one based on faith, verse 6, in order to be included in the inseparable love of God, verse Uh, 9 tells us that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. And that is what all of Israel refused to do. As a people, they rejected 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, Jesus told them in Matthew 21, 43, that he took the kingdom away from them and gave it to a people producing its fruits. Enter Romans 11. So now Paul answers this objection head on. In verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? In other words, has national, ethnic Israel been rejected entirely and ultimately by God? And Paul gives two answers. The first answer is found in verses 1 through 6, that God has always kept a remnant, a portion for himself. This was true in Old Testament Israel. Verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And this is true in New Testament age. Verse 5, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. This remnant will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Paul gives a second answer, and it is the most astounding answer in verses 11 through 36. This is the summary. God is not done with national Israel. And before the end, national ethnic Israel will be saved as a, as a people group. And that brings us to our doctrine proper. So one more time, if you missed it at the beginning. Before the end, God will pour out his covenant mercies on Israel. And they will embrace the Savior. They'll be engrafted into the church. And this will mean life from the dead for the rest of the world. Now, I want to demonstrate that doctrine with, with five proofs from Romans 11. Or five truths from Romans 11. So truth number one is this. That God's plan for Israel's apostasy was not damnation. God's plan for Israel's apostasy was not her damnation. Look at verse 11. This is truth number one. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, Paul is asking, was their great sin of rejecting Christ purposed by God so that Israel as a nation would forever be cut off? And he answers, by no means. If you have a King James Bible, it says, God forbid. He answers in the strongest terms possible. Rather, he continues, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Consider those two designs that Paul speaks of here. The first design is that through Israel's apostasy, the gospel would freely and promiscuously spread to the Gentiles. This was actually a, um, a, a real challenge in the first century. At every turning point, the Jews were resisting the gospel going to the Gentiles. But the second design is that Israel would be made jealous as a result. Meaning that the Jews would see these manifold blessings of Christ being poured out upon the Gentiles and they would be provoked to a holy jealousy, a holy desire to want the same thing. 
meditate on that just for a moment. God's design was to provoke them to jealousy. Why would he want to make them jealous unless he had some future plan for them? To bring them back. Truth number two. Israel's full inclusion is prophesied as a future event. Israel's full inclusion is prophesied as a future event. Look at verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is so vital to see. The words there and they here is not referring to the remnant that that embrace Christ. He's talking about Israel as a national identity, that group that rejected him. As a whole, they were guilty. And he's making this lesser to greater argument. He's saying, if if Israel's national sin led to Christ spreading in the cosmos to the nations of the earth, how much more will Israel's national restoration mean? So two things to see here. First, he's saying unequivocally that there's something greater in store for the rest of the world. The nations received riches when Israel sinned. How much more will the nations receive when Israel is restored? Now, he doesn't tell us what that is yet. He's just hinting at it. Secondly, Paul is saying that in no uncertain terms, Israel will one day experience a full inclusion. Since AD 70, they have experienced full exclusion. But there's coming a day when they'll experience full inclusion. So Israel's future on planet Earth is not relegated to a mere remnant of believers, but a nation of believers. Truth number three. Israel's acceptance will result in a worldwide revival. Her acceptance will result in a worldwide revival. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says, I want to convert as many Gentiles as possible because as they are converted, it provokes Israel to more jealousy and that will in turn lead for blessings for the rest of the world. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? This is, again, another lesser to greater argument. So we have to interpret the last clause as being greater than the first clause. In the first clause, the Gentile nations have learned of the salvation of Christ and millions upon millions have been brought to God. The last clause, therefore, this life from the dead must carry a far greater blessing than that. And that, you know, just millions. So this last clause, what, is this, what does this mean? What does this mean that the world will experience life from the dead. 
some have suggested that just, this just means the final resurrection. In other words, Jews, when the Jews experience this great national revival and when millions of them turn to Messiah, then immediately comes the end. Then immediately Jesus returns. Then the final resurrection, life from the dead. Now, there are two key problems with that interpretation. First, nowhere else in Scripture does that Greek phrase, zoe ek nekros, life from the dead, ever refer to the final resurrection. Nowhere. If Paul meant the final resurrection, then why would he use a phrase that it's nowhere else used to describe it? If Paul intended final resurrection, he could have just simply used a very familiar phrase to indicate it. Why did he not say so if that's what he meant? Secondly, the second problem is when we, if you say that life from the dead means final resurrection, it actually violates Paul's lesser to greater argument. Remember, the form of the argument has been this. If this Jewish loss resulted in this Gentile gain, then this, Israel's, uh, then this Jewish gain will result in a greater Gentile gain. That's the form. But the problem is, is that the final resurrection, as some people think this means, is, is not just a greater Gentile gain. It includes both Jews and Gentiles. And additionally, it wouldn't be a benefit for all Gentiles, just the elect ones. So, so lexically and logically, it doesn't work to say that this phrase, life from the dead, means final resurrection. So then what does it mean? What does it mean? Does Paul use this phrase anywhere else? Yes, he does. In this very letter. T- turn with me to chapter 6, verse 13. Paul says... Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Here it is. As those who have been brought from death to life. Zao ek nekros. The only difference here with Romans 11.15 is that the word for life is in its plural verb form. Zao, where in chapter 11 verse 15, it's in its singular noun form. Um, Zoe. Other than that, it's the exact same phrase. Exact same phrase. So what does then this phrase mean? Uh, Brought from death to life. What does it mean here? It means uh, regeneration. It means new birth. It means being brought into the kingdom of God salvifically. Turn back to 11.15 now. Look at it again. For if Israel's rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead for the world? Global regeneration, global revival. That's the greater blessing that flows from Israel's restoration. Too good to be true, isn't it? Charles Hodge says here, it will be a most glorious event as though a new world has risen. The conversion of the Jews will be the occasion or the means of awakening many of the Gentiles to spiritual life. 
Dutch theologian Wilhelmus A. Brockel, 1635 to 1711, says this, this will be a more imminent time than the age of the apostles. The church of the Gentiles will be so quickened and revived by the conversion of Israel that her former state will appear to be as such as the difference between a dead and a living person. The unconverted will be converted in great numbers and the converted will become partakers of a wondrous increase in the measure of grace. Oh, what a glorious time that will be. Who then will be alive? He said that 400 years ago. He's looking forward to the future of the world. And he, and he, he, he just, he's it's, it's just ripping off the pages. When the Jews are called, the world will experience a unprecedented revival. Truth number four. Israel's hardness of heart will one day cease. Israel's hardness of heart will one day cease. Look with me at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, three things here. First, he's saying outright he doesn't want us to be ignorant of this mystery. He openly now declares what it is, but, but he's saying, apart from me telling you this mystery, you would be ignorant of it. Secondly, he's telling us what this mystery is, that a partial hardening has come upon national ethnic Israel because of their rejection of Christ, and that hardening has an expiration date. Uh, It's going to come to an end. Thirdly, the hardening of Israel will terminate precisely when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That phrase is is really important to understand. What does the fullness of the Gentiles mean? Well, some have said that this fullness of the Gentiles means the final number of the elect Gentiles then living. The final number of the elect Gentiles then living. But beloved, if that's the case, then that means that no single Gentile could be saved when Israel experiences this great restoration. Wouldn't that be strange that over the course of months and years of Israel's revival, not one Gentile would be converted? Does that seem like God's ways of doing things? Does that seem like the greater blessing promised for the Gentile world in verse 12? Furthermore, if no Gentiles could be saved at that point, then it undermines what Paul had already said in verse 15, namely that Israel's restoration would mean life from the dead or regeneration for the Gentile world. So it can't mean that the the final or full number of of the elect then living. So then what does it mean? It simply means this, a great multitude, a magnificent number, When this great multitude of Gentiles comes to Christ, then Israel's hardening will come to an end. Remember, that was Paul's argument in verse 11. Salvation came to the Gentiles in order to provoke 
Israel to jealousy. And so when these multitudes of of Gentiles come, this predetermined number by God, a fullness, then Israel will be made sufficiently jealous and God will soften their hearts and they will turn to the Lord. Truth number five. All Israel will be saved just as the prophets have said. All Israel will be saved just as the prophets have said. Look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Stop there for a moment. Some have said that Israel here refers to spiritual Israel, meaning God's elect made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But, but that, as John Murray and F.F. And Bruce have said, is, is exegetically impossible. Uh, there are three reasons why this must mean national ethnic Israel. First, since chapter 9, Paul has been using this phrase Israel explicitly to mean national ethnic Israel. In, in the preceding 10 cases of him using the word, it's indisputable, cle- indisputably clear that he means the Jews in contrast with the Gentiles. So what compelling reason could be given to him all of a sudden adopt a different meaning here? Secondly, Paul already told us in verse 12 that Israel was going to be fully included. So he already made mention of this doctrine. And then thirdly, he says... In 25, that he didn't want the Gentiles to be unaware of this great mystery. Let me ask you, is it a great mystery that all the elect, both Jews and Gentiles, would be saved? Is that a great mystery, that the elect would end up being saved? No, it's not. It's not a great mystery. But it is a great mystery that this nation who crucified the Lord would be brought back to the Messiah. That's the great mystery. This doesn't mean here, when, God, when, when Paul says all Israel is going to be saved, he doesn't mean that every individual Jew will be saved. It just means that Israel as a whole, as a people group, it'll become a Christian nation. And this is exactly what the prophets foretold. Look, At verse 26 again, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now this is quoted in Isaiah 59, 20 through 21, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Go read those chapters. Read them for yourself. This doctrine of the future national conversion of Israel is not limited to Paul. The prophets speak of it. A few noteworthy prophecies would also include Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Hosea 3, 4 through 5, Zechariah 8, Zechariah 12, 10. It's actually all over the Old Testament. So those five truths vindicate our doctrine. I know that was a lot. We're going to slow down a little bit now. Not so much fire hosey, okay? Um, let's look at our duty. And we, and we have three of them. And, and our first duty is just to think carefully about the nation of Israel. We have to think carefully about Israel because there are two 
opposite errors that we can make. The first error is the dispensational error from our dispensational brothers where they see Israel and the Gentile church as two distinct peoples of God. God has two distinct peoples with two distinct plans and two distinct destinies. That is not a biblical doctrine. Um, It fails to take in the truth of Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So let's not make that error. But the second error is the one that we're prone to, which is the God has nothing more to do with the Jews error. If you say to me, but wait a second, Pastor Josh, last week you said that Christ took the kingdom away from the Jews in AD 70, that that God divorced the Jews. I did say that. And I agree that Jesus uh, did say that in Matthew 21, 43. And that's actually precisely what Paul's teaching us in Romans 11. In verses 17 through 24, he says that God cut off those branches. He cut them off. But then what does he go on to teach about those branches? That he's going to graft them back into the one olive tree. The problem is is that many of us have cut Romans 11 out of our olive tree. Beloved, God still has dealings left with Israel. Look Look at verse 28 and 29. This might be the clearest part. As regards the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. Meaning, as unbelieving branches, they are enemies of God. Continuing. But as regards election, meaning, in regard, if we think about the, the covenant that God made with Abraham and that people, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 29 is not merely a general principle. Paul is applying it specifically to Israel. It was the Lord who called Israel, and he will remain faithful because he cannot go back on his call. He's not a man that he would change his mind. This covenant that God made with the nation means that he will not finally reject them, but he will one day bring them back. He will one day graft them in. He's not forsaken his people whom he foreknew. So don't overreact to dispensationalism and think that God has no more place for the Jews. We have to reject those two errors, the Israel, Israel, Israel error and the God has no place for the Jews error. Those are both wrong. That brings us to our our second duty, which is rebuke. If we have adopted an arrogant view towards Israel, we have to rebuke ourselves. Um, Paul specifically calls this out in verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. That's the Jews. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. The root supports you. Meaning that your salvation rests on the very covenant that God made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. 
As a Gentile, you do not support the root. The root supports you. Beloved, don't you realize that it was the Jews that preserved God's word for millennia? It was through Israel where where the Savior found a nursery to, to, to grow up in. Our spiritual nourishment came through them. And if you have contempt against the Jews, you need to rebuke yourself. Haven't they already received enough contempt from unbelievers? Don't you know that God still calls them beloved because of this covenant that he swore to them in verse 28? So if God has not rejected his covenant people, God forbid that we would be arrogant and indifferent towards them. And our second rebuke is aimed at unbelief. Dear friend, if you're here this morning and you you are not a believer, don't you know that the Jews were cut off and and cast into the the dump heap of history for the last 2,000 years because of their unbelief? They've experienced the severity of God's judgment. And And if you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you are already under right now the judgment of God. Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Jews are a grave warning to you, dear unbeliever friend. If God has been so severe on his covenant people for their unbelief, how much more will he be severe on you? Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and live today. That brings us to our final duty, which is the conversion of Israel, that we should pray for it. We should pray for the conversion of Israel. Do you know how many places in the Psalms where the ancient Jews were told to pray for you, the Gentile nations, to pray for your conversion? to pray for the conversion of the Gentile nations for the sake of God's kingdom. It's everywhere. And it is our duty to pray that they would be grafted back in. Because they're beloved by God, verse 28. Because their acceptance means life from the dead for the world, verse 15. Therefore, we ought to pray earnestly for their conversion. And this is precisely what our own Westminster standards urge us to do. In... Just, just a sample from the larger catechism. Question 191 says this. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, that the gospel propagated throughout the world and the Jews called and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. It is a part of our Reformed confessional tradition that we would pray for the conversion of the Jews and that multitudes of Gentiles would be brought into the church. So those are our duties. Number one, avoid errors when thinking about Israel. Two, rebuke yourself if you have contempt for them. And three, pray earnestly for their conversion. That brings us finally to our delight. 
ask yourself, what is chiefly on display here in Romans 11? Is it Israel that's chiefly on display? Actually, not at all. It's the immutable, unchangeable, faithful, tender, loyal, covenant love of Jehovah. After all the wickedness that the Jews committed against the Lord, what does God say about them in this chapter? He says in verse 28, but as regards election, they are beloved. Beloved? They're beloved? Did you see what they did to your son? Did you see what they did to your word? They're beloved? Our covenant-keeping God has never stopped loving his people. And loved ones, do you see what a wonderful comfort that that brings to you? If God doesn't discard his, his carnal, external, national covenant with Israel, how much more will he never discard his spiritual and internal covenant of grace with you? With you? You might say, but Pastor Josh, I've backslidden too many times. I've been unfaithful too many times. I've sinned too many times. That's 100% true. Your backslidings are inexcusable. Your unfaithfulness is appalling. Your sin is shameful. You and I are all of those things. All of them. But God is not. God is not who God is. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love to those who fear him. God is a covenant keeper. Take hold of that, loved one. That because God has made a covenant with you that he will never break his promise, he will never forget his promise, he will never change his mind. Have you given reasons for him to hate you? Israel gave him more. Have you given reasons for him to forsake you? Israel has given him more. Have you given him reasons to throw you into hell? Yes, and Israel has given him more. But just as he has promised to not break his covenant with them, so he will never break his covenant with you. As we close... I want to celebrate with you over God's faithfulness one more time. Do you see how the chapter ends? After all this theology, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. He can't help it. He can't help but praise God after what he just taught. Now, ask yourself, what warrants that reaction from Paul? Is Paul beside himself in awe and worship simply because God is going to 
save a small handful of Jews and a small handful of Gentiles throughout history? Is that what Jesus went to the cross for? For just a small handful of believers out of the mass of humankind? No, beloved. Not at all. I believe that heaven will be far more populated than hell. This was the belief of Charles Spurgeon as well. Listen to what he said here. He said, quote, Do you think that Christ will let the devil beat him? That he will let the devil have more in hell than there will be in heaven? No, it's impossible. For then Satan would laugh at Christ. There will be more in heaven than there are among the lost. God says that there will be a number that no man can number who will be saved. But he never says that there will be a number that no man can number that will be lost. There will be a host beyond all count who will get into heaven. End quote. Consider just how the scripture talks about heaven and hell. Heaven is everywhere declared to be a vast place. Heaven is called the next world, a great kingdom, a country, a city. But on the other hand, hell is declared to be a a relatively small place, a, a prison, a lake of fire and brimstone, a pit. But what accounts for that, Pastor Josh, since it seems irrefutable that since the history of the world, the scales of of hell are much heavier than the scales of heaven? Well, I admit that's true. Um, For much of human history, the gate has been wide that has led to destruction, and many are those who entered by it. But, beloved, there's a day coming when that will be entirely reversed. A day is coming when all Israel will be saved and the world will experience revival like it has never seen nor heard nor has it entered into the heart of man. And then we will see all these great fulfillments spoken about in the prophets that the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea and the new covenant will find its full fruition where it says in Jeremiah 31, 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Beloved, Jesus Christ really will transform this world in history. He really will. And then the end will come. Then the end. Oh, the depths. Oh, the 